So grab your Bibles. It's February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. And we're in Acts 14. I think that's a uh, golden birthday or something like that. Um, So if you remember, last week we were in Acts 13, because these things go in order. And we saw Paul and Barnabas, and they were on this missionary journey. Uh, They traveled to the island of Cyprus, and then they went north across the Mediterranean onto the mainland. And eventually they end up in a, a town called Antioch of Pisidia. Uh, and there, Paul preached the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And one of the things we learned from our text is, and, and this is the quote from it, is, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We also learned that many unbelieving Jews became angry as this was happening, and they drove them out of town, and so off they go. Uh, they leave Antioch, and they've traveled east, and... Uh, As our text said, even in the midst of all this persecution, they were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, today they journey on again, and we're going to see where God takes them, and we're going to see God continue to work in their lives in just amazing ways. Uh, So we're going to start by reading just the first seven verses of chapter 14, uh, and then we're going to pray, asking God's blessing on our time and his word, and uh, then we'll continue on. Uh, So Acts 14. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding county, country. And, they were, and there they continued to preach the gospel. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Grant us faith to believe in our hearts that very truth. May we be challenged and encouraged and comforted when we see in this text that your mighty strength and unmerited grace for sinners like we. We also ask that you would give our attention deficit minds focus this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this chapter, they'll end up visiting three different cities. The first one is Iconium. Uh, and this is a result of traveling for 80 miles um, east of Antioch of Pisidia. And so 80 miles, they're going mostly by, feet, by foot. This is a longer journey. Sometimes in the text we just think like they walk out of one and show up in the next one like you would in a video game. Uh, there's a long process to get there. Uh, eventually they get to Iconium. Iconium is fairly high up. It is built 4,000 feet above sea level on this flat plateau. And the city actually still exists today. It's in present day uh, Turkey, and known by the Turkish name of Konya. Um, so if you're ever near Konya, you're actually in Iconium. Uh, today, there are over a million people there, uh, overwhelmingly an Islamic city. Uh, this is one of the cities, though, just to kind of keep it in some sort of biblical perspective, this is one of the cities that Paul had in mind when he wrote the book of Galatians. He's writing to the area, the region of Galatia, which this is in. Uh, and he writes the book sometime after this missionary journey. Uh, So as we get into this, I want you to remember that the last city that they just left, uh, they were driven out by angry Jewish people who saw them as a threat. 
and so they show up here. They arrive. Remember, there's been a period of time during this travel. They arrive, and the first thing they do is they proclaim the gospel. Um, and as the passage says in verse 1, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Yay. God's blessing, right? Uh, what an encouragement after the way they left to show up and have that happen. But <clears throat> you don't have to go very far. Look back at the text. It's also true that often God's blessing is peppered with what you and I might call trouble. And it only takes us until verse 2 to see that. They, they're running into opposition right off the bat. Uh, the unbelieving Jews have poisoned the minds of the Gentiles. That is something along the lines of, of convincing the people that Paul and Barnabas um, are idiots, uh, deceptive, somehow not to be trusted. Uh, they had poisoned them. And, and that could have been the moment where they thought, okay, let's shake some more dust off our feet and carry on. Um, but they don't. In fact, this opposition actually motivates them to stay in this time longer. You see in verse 3 that, that word so. Uh, that word so is, is also translated therefore. It's kind of one of those, this is the result of that kind of words. Um, so the opposition is the very reason that they stay for such a long time. And they keep preaching the gospel. And I love how the, the author, remember the author's Luke, uh, he summarized their preaching as the word of grace. The word of grace. That's the gospel then and now. The word of grace. And, and they continue by the power of God to do these miraculous signs. It's, um, you know, it's one of these things God was doing to the apostles as a way to confirm that what they are saying is indeed the word of God. It was a unique error in that sense. Um, the city is very divided uh, about Paul and Barnabas being there. It's kind of like you see our country in the political scheme right now, uh, only in a very small local area. And so it's very divided. The unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles uh, have this plan uh, on how to get rid of Paul and them. They are going to stone them to death, um, meaning that they have decided that the message they are preaching is some sort of uh, apostasy, some sort of blasphemy that, that is worthy of the death, death penalty. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas aren't, aren't idiots. Um, people being angry with them, they can survive. People stoning them to death, they probably can't. So they decide this is probably a good time to leave. And they do. They leave. And they uh, leave before that plan gets put into action. And, and I love what we see here in verse 7, that, that they continue to preach the gospel. I mean, how many times in the book of Acts have we seen this? They continue to preach the gospel. They continue to preach the gospel. They're like the energizer bunnies of, of gospel proclamation. They just keep going and going and, and going no matter what happens. And, and these threats to their lives um, moves them on from town to town, but it doesn't get them quiet. They don't quit preaching the gospel. Every place they go, uh, they're not silent, but they proclaim Jesus. So the people in Iconium do come to faith, uh, and their hope is that God will, will do a similar work in the hearts of the people in the next town. And so they keep moving, and they keep preaching Jesus to each person they come to. Uh, so let's look at that, beginning in verse 8. We'll read all the way through 23. It's a little extended period, so grab your Bibles and follow along. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, <clears throat> brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the, with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And so this city of Lystra, um, just understand the makeup of it. It was predominantly retired Roman soldiers. Uh, it was also a group of Jewish people. Uh, the Greek authors uh, talk a lot about this town, actually, and from that we can get this picture of Lystra. Um, it had the reputation of, of being the kind of town uh, that would have been YouTube gold, uh, if you kind of understand that. Kind of the, you know, hold my beer while I try this kind of town. Uh, someone's going to get it on video and it's going to go viral. There's no nice way to say this. Redneck, backwoods, podunk, hillbilly kind of town. Uh, that was their reputation, which I love. I love that we get to learn about this kind of town in here because <clears throat> we've seen them take the gospel to, to, to Antioch. And we've learned that Antioch, it's this you know, cosmopolitan, Paris, New York kind of classy place. Uh, it's prestigious, and, and the culture and intellect there and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but in this passage, we're seeing that they're going to um, take the gospel to these redneck towns as well, which is a beautiful thing for us to learn because Kansas has a lot of those towns. No offense to you born in Kansas. <clears throat> I mean, really, though, Travis back there, he's here even though he's sick. Don't get close to him. Uh, has this long-term vision to really you know, help us Think through what church planting in Kansas looks like in some of these smaller towns. Um, and it's great because right now in, in the church planting circles, there's this, it, it's really in vogue to go to the big cities, you know, the big influential uh, areas of, 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 of towns and stuff, just big cities, and, and, and to think that. So, so there's this mentality that's really in church planting saying, you know, go big or go home. And I think we can, we can agree with that um, if it's not an insult to say go home, at least. You know, go big with the gospel. I'm all for it. The big cities need it. But, but go home with the gospel also. You know, go to the town you grew up with and reform a church or plant a new one that'll be solid. I think the, the point is that, you know, big cities and smaller towns, intellectuals and rednecks, all need the grace of God. And when they preach in Lystra, they're showing us that. They're showing us that they don't discriminate in any way in that regard. So as we look at this, the, the first thing they find is a crippled man, uh, a man who can't walk from birth. And, and we don't know exactly how this worked, but somehow Paul could see that God had given this man faith to be healed. It's not explained, so I can't explain it to you. Uh, and so he says that this, to this man in this loud voice, you know, he kind of walks up to him and it's going to be overheard by everyone around him, but he stands and he says, Anesteme epitos poros su orthos. Sounds like magic in Greek, doesn't it? It's not nearly as cool in the English, but all he says there is, stand upright on your feet. Uh, it's not so magical there. But he does. Uh, the man pops right up. And, you know, these are Paul's words, but really it's God who heals this man. 
Um, this man who was surely well known, you know, he's crippled from birth, and here he is, a grown man at this point, and so everyone in town must have known him. Uh, to see him pop up, I can, I can only imagine. Uh, the crowds were shocked. Uh, and this man just springs up and, and he walks. And, and, and they see this. And, and you can imagine, they shout out, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They even have, have an idea of what specific gods they are. They give them names, right? Barnabas, you're Zeus. You must be Zeus. And, and Paul, they're calling Hermes because apparently Hermes spoke a lot. Um, and so here's the deal with the, them calling these specific, specific gods, these particular gods. It wasn't just out of the blue. There's actually a, a story behind it. See, um, uh, Ovid, Ovid was a, a Roman poet, and I honestly have no idea if I pronounced that right, uh, was a Roman poet who wrote this story. To us, it's 2,000 and something years ago, but it was just 50 years before this point in history. And he writes this story called Metamorphosis. And, and in the story, there are two mythical gods, Jupiter and Mercury, uh, they're also known by their Greek names, Zeus and Hermes. And in the story, these gods come to this very region, right where this town is, and, and having disguised themselves as men, they, they seek for someone to show them hospitality, and they go around knocking on door after door, and they get rejected one house after another, uh, until thousands have turned them away, and, and finally one couple welcomes them in and shows them hospitality. Uh, the legend said that, that the couple's home immediately turned into a temple. It's like the health wealth of this, this era. Um, turns into the temple, and at the same time, uh, the home, every other home that rejected them, just gets destroyed, absolutely wiped out. It's just a story. But the people here really believe that this is Zeus and, and Hermes standing before them. They really believe this. Now, now remember, this town is more Fayetteville than Cambridge. No offense if you're from Fayetteville. <clears throat> and they really believed that Zeus and, and Hermes have actually returned to them in this moment. And so now Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. They, you know, they, they don't even immediately stop this, this nonsense that's happening. And, and, and the reason is, did you notice what language the people proclaim them to be gods in? Do you see that in verse 11? Lyconian. Well, they don't speak Lyconian. There was this, this language barrier that was going on between them and uh, you know, it's fairly common. I remember I was on a, a mission trip some years ago in Mexico, and I asked this woman, "Cuántos años tienes?" And I think I said it right this time. And her eyes just bulged out, and then she started laughing at me, and, and I was embarrassed. And it took a while to figure out why she was laughing. You know what? You know, someone who could speak both languages to explain this to me. Um, I thought I had asked her, "How old are you?" Um, and my failure to pronounce a tilde, that little squiggly line that I have no idea how to pronounce, uh, actually had me asking her, how many butts do you have? <laughs> she did answer the question, though. Uno. <laughs> the language barrier in our text, though, not so funny. I mean, the priest of, of the temple of Zeus is now showing up with an oxen that he plans to kill as a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because they think they're Zeus and Hermes. So, I mean, can you imagine going on a mission trip, maybe some tribal island, and the people there, you know, start gathering like a cow or something that they're going to sacrifice in your honor? Thank you. I mean, do you stop them? Or do you kind of go with it? 
they're going to stop them. They, they see this as a problem. You know, by the time that Paul and Barnabas really understand what's going on, they must be thinking like, whoa, you know, we, if we've learned anything on this journey, it's that we ought not let people worship us. We don't want to be eaten by worms. But really, the two of them are just so centered on, on who God is. Um, and they don't want to take any glory that belongs to God, you know, that rightly belongs to God to be given to them. And so I guess one of them said to the other, we've, we've got to stop this. Here's what I think is going on. I think I've figured this out. Uh, and we see in verse 14, we see it says there, they just, they tore their clothes and they rushed out in the crowd and they're crying out, men, why are you doing these things? They're upset. You think from the other people's perspective, here are these, why are the gods yelling at us? Uh, but they're, you know, tearing their garments then is the sign that this was blasphemous, that, that this is distressing us. It's a displeasure over, over what we see you about to do. And they tell them, we're men just like you. We're not Zeus. We're not Hermes. We're just men who bring you good news. I think some of us need to read this from the other perspective, actually. We always kind of associate with the apostles, but... You know, from the angle of the, the, the Lyconians. Um, Tim Keller preaches the good news. Does a great job. But he is a man just like me and you. Jen uh, Hatmaker. Jen Hatmaker is a woman just, not me, just like maybe you. Uh, personally, myself, I, I have to remind myself that John Piper, he's one of my heroes in the faith, I have to remind myself he's just a normal man who preaches the gospel. You see, as Christians, we tend, to, we tend to esteem famous pastors and authors and bloggers and musicians, uh, even to the point that it's almost, almost worship. And I, I say this just so you'll keep an eye on your own heart so that you might uh, be encouraged by these men and these women, really encouraged, but without esteeming them higher than mere men or women. Let them point you to your Savior, but don't ever let them become your Savior. In our text today, then Paul and Barnabas... I want to make it clear that they're just the messengers. Uh, you know the, the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. I think that's Jacob's unit's phrase. Um, here we're seeing quite the opposite. Don't worship the messengers. And, and so while they're not gods, they, they do have good news. They bring a message of good news. And it might not sound like good news to them at first because it's really going to mess up their understanding of their own culture. You know, stop worshiping these worthless ideas. Stop with the sacrifices to false, non-living gods. Because that's, that was their culture in a lot of ways. They, you know, they're seeking and they're bowing to these false gods. In our, our culture, it would be something different. It might be the pursuit of a, a variety of definitions of success. You know, the, the god of, of being wealthy or famous or, or the god of um, being the best in whatever your particular career is. The god of marriage or children or house or car or sports or maybe even just relaxation. You know, that's what you long for. You know better than I know what temple your heart is templed to worship at. Watch that. And they also do the opposite. They call them to worship the living God. Now, overwhelmingly, the people they are speaking to do not know the Old Testament. They're biblically illiterate. Uh, and so if, if he began to say, uh, to talk about Father Abraham, their response would be, Father who? Uh, only probably be a lot more crass than that from what we know about this town. Um, and like I said, they're biblically illiterate, which is increasingly actually the culture that you and I live in. Not that people are illiterate, but they don't know what's in Scripture. 
And what's crazy here is that Paul is teaching them Bible truth. He's teaching them Bible content. And he's not even citing the Bible at all. But he's got to start somewhere. And so he, he speaks in these terms of one true God. And he tells them in verse 15 that this God made heaven and made the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he tells them that this God allowed people to walk in their own ways away from God. You might recognize this, right? He's telling them Genesis, and yet he doesn't mention it. And then in verse 17, he's talking about general revelation. That's the way that just creation points to the divine creator, to God. You can go outside at night and just kind of look at the world. Can you give me any better explanation than the fact that a divine God made it? He goes through that and he's saying the rain and the fruitful seasons and their hearts finding satisfaction in food and, and gladness. That You know, this is that common grace. It's not grace in the same saving grace that we receive in Christ. Uh, but it's that grace that God shows all people, whether they acknowledge him or not. Just the general joys you can get out of life. And we don't learn what else they share. Um, but we do know that they do successfully stop the people from worshiping them. So that's progress. Uh, only just barely, it says. Um, and so let's, let's see what happens next. Uh, follow along. I'll start reading verse 19. <clears throat> but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so the, the Jews from the last town are so angry that they actually travel. I mean, this is 80 miles to go hunt these two down. They're pursuing them. Uh, it's like when, you know, the Libyans show up in Back to the Future. They found us. I don't know how, but they found us. Uh, only Paul didn't have a DeLorean to escape from this situation. And these angry people take him and they stone him. It's a nasty picture. It's the kind of thing we'd, we'd never put in a children's story, probably. Um, somehow they restrain him from being able to escape, either tying him or surrounding him. Uh, and they begin to pick up rocks. And the idea was to pick up a rock that was big enough to, to do damage, but not so big that you would just knock him out cold immediately. Uh, and so they do that. Immediately, eventually, one of those rocks hits him in the, the head, knocks him out cold. And uh, so he's laying there on the ground, and they, they think he's dead. They're convinced he's dead enough that they just drag his body out of town and just leave it on the ground. Remember um, back in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, uh, right after Paul was, was converted, after he uh, on the way to uh, Damascus, and um, <clears throat> there was this statement that kind of foretold what was going to happen to Paul and, and, and in it God says that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So this is part of what God's talking about. Paul is still alive. And the other Christians in town, they go out and they get him uh, and he goes back into the city and he stays the night. I don't know if I would have done that. I would have wanted to get as far from there as I possibly could immediately. Uh, maybe he couldn't travel that far. He's, he's in pain. 
You imagine he's battling just the anxiety that these people will find him in town and come after him again. And the next day, they, they travel. They go 65 miles southeast to Derby. Uh, we don't hear, hear much about what they do here. Of course, we hear they do the same thing they've done every place they go. They preached the gospel and they made many disciples, uh, meaning, that, meaning that they continued the Great Commission even as they arrived there. This is kind of the turnaround point. If you jog or ride a bike, you kind of hit that point and you've got to go back, right? Um, you can go no further. And they do. They go back and they go through all these cities, Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. In verse 22, we, we read that at each step, each stage or stop, they are strengthening the souls of the disciples. They are encouraging them to continue in the faith. And they're saying that by many, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Um, these are new believers. They're likely facing persecution right off the bat. The fact that Paul and Barnabas get driven out of these towns would tell you that they are not well received in their own towns at this point. And so they need encouragement. And one of the things they need encouragement with is that tribulations are to be expected. It's not a word we we use very often, is it? Uh, No one says, you know, the road trip was full of tribulations. You know, that would sound weird. Don't say that. But, But understand that this word means pressure and anguish means being burdened um, all sorts of trouble and it's important that these new believers understand that the the christian life isn't all you know sunshine lollipops and rainbows it's it's like paul later writes in second corinthians 4 8 through 10 we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The Christian life can be difficult. And it is so for good reason. Um, J.I. Packer, maybe you've heard of him, he once wrote, God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing, so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on him. Uh, Derek Thomas, another PCA pastor, uh, addresses the flip side of that, saying, uh, the question we must always ask is the same. Are we experiencing peace and calm as we traverse through this world because we are insufficiently committed to living countercultural? I can't answer that for you. But I can tell you that uh, the blessing of God is often not what we expect it to be. Uh, you think of even, you know, Jesus, uh, Matthew 5. He, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you get what this, what this means for you, for us? I mean, your life might be hard. You might face frustrations of all sorts. And all the while, God is working in and through your life for eternal purposes. You understand that? Okay. So we see as they traveled to these towns with these new believers, one of the things they really did at each step was to set up local churches. Uh, there was structure. No one ever thinks about structure, but there was structure. And in verse 23, we learn that they appointed elders in every church. This Greek word, you know, rendered elders is presbyteros. 
Sound familiar? Uh, it's where our denomination actually gets its name from, Presbyterian. It's a, a system of church government consisting of a plurality of elders, multiple elders. Um, elders in other places of Scripture are called uh, pastors and shepherds and overseers. Uh, but as we see here, there's this plurality of elders, and the plural is very important because uh, some churches today follow what is just a business model. Uh, they modeled it off of that. You have a pastor who functions like a, a CEO and then a council who's more like a board of directors. You know, let's review him and see how he's doing and you can keep your job if you do good. Uh, <clears throat> it's not a biblical model. Uh, and really, it puts too much power in, in one man's hand. Uh, I don't want that power. Don't. Um, but keep in mind this also, that the role of an elder in the church is really one of under shepherd. Uh, and that's because Christ is the shepherd. And so the elders in the church are, are called to be under shepherds, under his authority. Uh, scripture gives a list of qualifications for this office and includes uh, the ability to teach, uh, and the ability to model godly character. And, and we're going to see this role in, in Acts uh, 20 with a little more detail. We'll look at it there. We'll also uh, look at the qualifications a little bit during the informational meeting today. Uh, and the reason is because currently we, currently we are a church plant. Our session, which is, this is some confusing stuff, right? Our session, which is just uh, a group of elders over a local church. Uh, it's a collection of men who serve as elders in other churches in Kansas, in our denomination. And they uh, basically are serving over two congregations as a way to, to help, help lead here. Um, vocational pastors, there's two types of elders, as I am, are called teaching elders. Uh, we do most of the teaching, most of the preaching, and that's because uh, the other type of elders actually have jobs and do things. Uh, <clears throat> those are non-vocational pastors like Travis is. Um, they're called ruling elders in our, our system. Uh, they shepherd, they teach. It would be fair to refer to them as your pastor as well. Uh, there's not a hierarchy. Travis is called to shepherd you. Uh, and, and God willing, when we have other local elders, uh, they just as much as me are called to shepherd you. Uh, it's an important distinction there. I think sometimes the pastor gets elevated, and it shouldn't be the case. Uh, so in our text, then, we, we see that they select elders, and they pray, and they fast for them. And after committing them to the Lord, they, um, they head to the next church or the next town, and they set up a church there as well. And, and eventually, they get back to Antioch, back to their home church. That's just the last few verses. Let's look at those, starting in verse 24. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So all these towns are on their way back. Uh, back to the shore, they get on a boat, they don't go back to Cyprus, that's the only place they skip on the way home, uh, and they go all the way back to Antioch of Syria, that's their church home. Uh, this journey would have taken about one year round trip, um, is what we're talking about. And when they get back, they gather everyone together, and they gather everyone because missions is important to the entire church, not just a group of the church, not just a few, and then they share the stories of what God has done. They're not all written down here, we've heard some of them along the way. Uh, but they share these stories from this first missionary journey. Uh, and one of the major summarizing things they point to is that God was opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's going to become a big theme in the next, the next chapter. Um, and, and so this mission of God, though, that, uh, and the reason for mission, that missionaries are sent out is to preach the gospel to those who haven't heard. 
It is to disciple those in the faith, even those who are new in the faith. And it's to establish these disciples in solid churches with faithful leaders. And they stayed for a long time. And you imagine they were encouraged and got to share all that God had been doing with them. Uh, so I want to bring our, our time to a close, but, but, but I want to do so by, by looking back at verse 11. You remember they're in Lystra at the time, and the people there thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes, and, and they said the gods have come down in the likeness of men. There's some irony in this. Um, this is the thing that all week just kept sticking in my head, that this is what they thought was happening. It's an irony because the message that Paul and, and Barnabas bring is actually fairly similar. Only when, when God actually comes down uh, incarnate in, in the person of Jesus Christ, it's to accomplish salvation and to redeem a people for himself by giving of himself. Whereas in this, this made-up story that the people were looking to, um, <clears throat> told of their gods destroying those who failed to show them hospitality, the true story of the gospel is that Jesus has laid down his life for his enemies, and, and that God has even opened the doors of his home, showing us hospitality. But even more than that, that he adopts us as his very sons and daughters. Uh, not just showing temporary hospitality, but eternal hospitality uh, as his children living with him forever. I mean, do you see this? Do you understand how great our God is? How glorious he is? Just the love that he shows us in the gospel, that we are made his children uh, forever. Let's pray. God, give us a deep sense of your acceptance by you. Uh, and so take away our deep-seated fear of rejection by others. May we be unharmed by the words hurled against us as we hide under the shield of your word, which tells us just how dearly you have loved us as your children. God, I ask that you give faith to those who need it and that you strengthen the faith of those who have received it by your grace alone. And if we are worshiping in false temples, Lord, open our eyes to become aware of that and make our feet to stop chasing such worthless things and follow you. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.